Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable, New Jersey's drinking water, PFAS chemical threats, and cleanup efforts. In this program, we'll discuss the public health and policy challenges presented by PFAS, a class of chemicals that's linked to cancer and other illnesses. PFASs are widespread in the environment and have been found more often in New Jersey's drinking water than in many other states. As states, including New Jersey, set strict health limits on some of the chemicals, our panelists will examine questions including what the chemicals have been used for and how they got into water sources, why they are seen as a threat to public health, even at low levels, what policies campaigners want to see from state and federal governments, what the military is doing to clean up water sources on and around its bases, and how leading water systems and municipal providers are responding to rising public and governmental concern on the issue. This program was recorded Wednesday, December 5th, 2018 at Camden County College in Camden, New Jersey. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, will introduce the program. Welcome everyone, and thank you for being here. My name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of uh, NJ Spotlight. Um, and for those who don't know us, we're an uh, online news site. Um, been around eight and a half years now, uh, covering public policy and, and politics in New Jersey. Um, and a core uh, of, our, of our mission is also uh, holding events like this one uh, around the state. I think we've held 60, 60 plus. Uh, in different locations around the state. We did one a couple years ago here on, on water quality, uh, Delaware Watershed as well. And it's really important um, as a, a source of information and engagement for New Jersey on public policy issues to, to have these convenings and, and getting people together where it's not just uh, living online but actually getting in the same room with each other. And, and uh, we thank you very much for being part of it. Um, at the same time, and I, this is a little uh, shameless marketing, we are a nonprofit. Uh, and, and rely on the support of our readers. Um, so certainly, uh, if you like this event and like what we're doing, uh, we welcome you to come to our site, become a member. Um, for $35 or more, you can become a member and also have our undying gratitude forever. Um, but that is uh, really critical uh, to our existence going forward. And uh, at the, from now to the end of the year, we will be also, we have a match that will be doubling those gifts. Uh, so this is the time, and, and feel free to find me as well, but you also can do it through the website. Um, we also depend on the support of, of funders and sponsors to hold events like this one. And I want to welcome uh, Steve Shallot, our business development director, to tell you a little bit about that uh, before we get going with the event. Thanks, John, and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Steve Shallot, and I'm the, the producer of the event, as it were, and we are very happy to, to welcome everyone here and also to, uh, at this moment, acknowledge uh, the support of our sponsor of this event, which is um, New Jersey American Water. Um, I've got a few words on behalf of, uh, of, of New Jersey American Water, which is the largest water service provider in the state, serving approximately 2.7 million people in 191 communities. And that translates into the providing of safe, reliable water and wastewater service to uh, nearly one in three people in New Jersey. New Jersey American Water is a leader in water treatment and technology with technicians in their five local quality control labs administering daily tests for approximately 100 regulated contaminants. And their team continuously monitors, maintains, and provides upgrades to the company's facilities to ensure efficient operations and compliance with regulatory standards. 
And uh, we also have um, additional funding support from the William Penn Foundation, which helps fund our coverage of water quality issues statewide. Thank you. So let's get going. I'd like to introduce our moderator, uh, it's John Hurdle, who's done a lot of our coverage of water quality issues in New Jersey. Um, he's been writing as, uh, as well as environmental and energy issues. Um, he's been writing with us, working with us for years. He's also written for the New York Times, uh, WHYY State Impact, and WDDE in Delaware. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome John Hurdle, and, and could the panelists also join us at the same time? Thank you very much. Thanks very much, John. Um, now, uh, if, I don't know whether anybody feels like coming down since there, there were relatively few of us. If you, anybody feels like moving down towards the, uh, towards the, the, the uh, platform here, then please feel free to do so. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce our very distinguished panel today. Um, uh, first, to, to my immediate right is uh, Gary Buchanan, who is uh, Director of the uh, Division of Science and Research uh, at the Department of Environmental Protection. Um, to his right is uh, Keith Cooper, a professor of toxicology at Rutgers and the chairman of the Drinking Water Quality Institute, which advises the DEP. Um, to Keith's right is uh, Tracy Carluccio, uh, di deputy director of Delaware Riverkeeper Network, the environmental group, and uh, Tracy's been working on the PFAS issue uh, for many years. Uh, to Tracy's right is Rich Calby, who's a Director of Operations at uh, Ridgewood Water, the uh, Municipal Utilities Authority. Um, uh, and so we're, we're um, looking forward to hearing his comments from the point of view of a, a municipal uh, water system. Uh, and finally, at the far end, we have uh, Anthony Masarazzo, who is uh, Se Senior Director for Water Quality and Environmental Management at New Jersey American Water. Um, and a member of the DWQI. Uh, so uh, first of all, I'm just going to uh, try to set the table for a few minutes, uh, just, for, just for about five minutes, with um, uh, some uh, an overview of what the, uh, of the, the issues surrounding uh, these PFAS chemicals. Uh, and then when we're done with that, we'll, uh, we'll uh, get into some uh, presentations from our panel. So uh, PFAS. Um, and, uh, and I'm only going to say this once, or attempt to uh, pronounce it once, per and polyfluoroalkyl alkyl, alkyl substances. So that's now you know why I'm only going to say it once. Um, also known as PFCs, uh, man-made chemicals have been around for decades, um, used um, in non-stick cookware, flame retardant fabrics, various consumer products, food packaging, uh, and, uh, and notably firefighting foam, uh, which has been used uh, most notoriously by the military, which has, has uh, contributed to uh, water contamination uh, near military bases such as McGuire-Dix Lakehurst here in New Jersey. Um, so some of the most common forms of, of the uh, PFAS chemicals are PFOA, PFOS, PFNA, all of which, all of which are in the process um, of being regulated by New Jersey, um, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, I think, be hearing some more about that. But those policy actions have made New Jersey a, um, a national leader in the field of regulating these chemicals. Um, and um, um, for, in terms of pathway exposures, we can, we can think about drinking water 
um, uh, living organi organisms like fish uh, and food that's been contaminated by packaging or soil. So PFOA and PFOS, as two of the best known of these chemicals, no longer made in the US, uh, but um, uh, it's, you can argue that US consumers are still uh, exposed to them because they're still manufactured overseas and they and potentially um, uh, get into the US system via imports. Now, uh, why are these chemicals a, a cause of concern for public health? Well, there's a, uh, a long list of, of um, illnesses that uh, have been linked to various of the uh, PFAS chemicals. Uh, some cancers, low, low infant birth weight, impa impaired immune systems, thyroid problems, elevated cholesterol uh, are some of, the, uh, some of the health issues, some of the question marks that... Um, uh, that uh, are placed against these, these substances. Now, how common are they in New Jersey? Um, well, uh, the, the, the general uh, statement there is that, there is that they are more prevalent in New Jersey than in many other states. Uh, in tw um, a DEP survey in 2014 uh, found that the chemicals were present in, in two-thirds of the municipal water systems tested across 20 counties. Uh, a separate study for the EPA found uh, PFOA present in 9% of the New Jersey sites tested, uh, which is much higher than the national figure of, of about 1.5%. Um, uh, I guess you might say that uh, in terms of a, a, a poster child, then uh, the, town, the South Jersey town of Paulsboro uh, has, been, has become known for, uh, for PFAS contamination. Um, and in 2013, um, it was shown to have the highest, the state's highest levels of, uh, of PFNA. And it's notable, um, these are very persistent chemicals, they don't break down in the environment. Um, and so that, uh, the, the Paulsboro uh, example is, is instructive in that the, the source of that contamination, uh, a, a local chemical company in West Deptford, had, had actually stopped using the, comp uh, the, uh, the chemical in 2010. Um, so, what's New Jersey doing about the problem? Um, and uh, there, the, it's really being the charge is really being led by the Drinking Water Quality Institute, which is um, a scientific panel that advises the DEP uh, on uh, on safe levels of these chemicals in drinking water, um, and and of course is represented here today by uh, by Keith Cooper. Um, and so since 2014, DWQI has recommended tough new limits uh, on, uh, for PF, PFNA, PFOA, and PFOS. Uh, those are lower than the, uh, uh, than the state's previous guidance levels um, and lower than the, than the so-called health advisory limits, uh, which are issued by the federal government, the EPA. Uh, DEP has accepted all three recommendations um, and has adopted the one for, uh, for PFNA. And in, that, in relation to that chemical, starting next year, small water systems will be required to monitor for PFNA, and that, that requirement will be extended to larger systems uh, in early 2020. Um, so the, the question arises is whether the federal government regulates this class of chemicals, uh, and the answer is simply no. Uh, the EPA issues only the, uh, the health, uh, um, uh, health advisory levels, which are non-enforceable. Um, and the EPA is under continuing pressure from 
uh, clean water advocates and state officials to set national standards. Um, a, a lot of uh, the critics will say that it, it's, uh, it would be a lot easier if everybody had to comply with the same national standard. If you leave it up to the states, then what you end up with is a, is a patchwork of, uh, of different levels. Um, however, the, the EPA has been paying more attention to the issue. Uh, this year, they launched a uh, fact-finding tour or a listening tour to uh, some affected lo locations around the country. Um, and the EPA says that it's going to publish a national management plan on the issue by the end of this year and will look into whether to regulate uh, PFOA and PFOS. Um, it's, it's, the EPA has also come under pressure from another federal agency, the ATSDR, which this year recommended health limits for those two chemicals that are seven to ten times lower um, than the EPA's uh, advisory levels. Um, and uh, I guess another question that arises here is what are utilities doing about it? Well, as I'm sure we're going to find out uh, from our panelists tonight, uh, both municipal and investor-owned utilities um, are taking their own action uh, to monitor and treat for PFAS uh, contamination independent of, uh, of regulation. Um, and so, uh, so with that, uh, and I'm sure we're going to find out here a lot more about that, um, with that we're, we're going to move on to um, the uh, opening statements from our, from our panelists. Um, and um, I'd just like to start with uh, with Gary Buchanan here on my right uh, from the uh, from the DEP. Thank you, John. Uh, as John mentioned, I'm the director for the Division of Science and Research at the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. My division provides technical and research support to the other programs within the department. Uh, my division is actually a small group of scientists with extensive experience in multiple environmental fields. Uh, most of my staff, uh, pretty much all of them have advanced degrees. Most of them actually have PhDs or so very experienced staff. Before I get into that, I just want to uh, highlight a couple things that John mentioned. Uh, these compounds, the PFAS, as the whole group is called, do not degrade in the environment. They've been around for about 60 years, and as he mentioned, the U.S., through EPA, has asked the manufacturers in the United States to voluntarily stop production of PFOA, PFOS, PFNA. But other perfluorinated compounds are still being produced in the United States, and the other ones are being produced elsewhere. But since they don't degrade, they're still around. But back to my, my division. My staff have been working on these compounds for over a decade. And we've spent an extraordinary amount of time developing these standards, uh, including the MCLs, or maximum contaminant levels. Uh, on my staff, Dr. Gloria Post is uh, my representative on the Drinking Water, Drinking Water Quality Institute. She's a board-certified toxicologist. Another one of my staff, Dr. Lee Lippincott, provides technical support to the Institute through the testing subcommittee, looking at various analytical methods and detection limits. And that's another thing I wanted to mention, detection limits. We're able today to see much, much lower concentrations of various 
contaminants, organic contaminants, that we couldn't see a few decades ago. Uh, one speech I gave recently, I said, when I started my career, we we're measuring in the parts per million. Now we're down in the parts per trillion or even parts per quadrillion. And we also have much better testing methods on the toxicity of these compounds. So my staff, along with other staff that I have, have reviewed literally thousands and thousands of scientific papers on PFAS. Most of these have been on animal and, and human toxicology. And they use these to help develop these PFNA, PFOA, and PFOS standards at the Institute. But in addition to assisting with uh, MCLs for the Institute, my division also supports other programs in developing standards for groundwater, surface water, and soil as requested by these other programs. So as John mentioned, we've been a national leader in dealing with these contaminants of emerging concern, if you will. We were the first in the nation to conduct public water uh, sampling at public water systems for PFOA and PFOS in 2006. Then we added additional compounds in addition to those two in, at, at more sites in 2009, 2010. We were probably the first in the nation, or at least had the lowest guidance value for PFOA uh, of 40 parts per trillion in 2007. This past summer, we ish also issued fish consumption advisories, mainly for P PFOS, P-F-O-S, which tends to accumulate in fish. We looked at 11 water bodies and issued advisories on 10 out of the 11 water bodies. As John mentioned, in September, we're the first in the nation to have a PFAS MCL for PFNA. And just to let you know what we do, internally, I chair what we call the Standards Coordination Committee. Again, it's multiple programs within a department. There, we're looking for consistency to use the best available science out there, make sure we have a good basis for for not only uh, detecting these compounds, but the health basis and treatment. I also chair what we call the PFAS Contaminants of Emerging Contaminants Workgroup. Same thing, same multiple programs. We share what each are doing in our respective programs, share our information, share our data to make sure we're coordinating and understand what's going on. <clears throat> So just in summary, uh, we follow the DEP principles, which is to follow the law, use the best available science. We listen to our stakeholders, listen to all sides. And we use all that information to find the best balance to protect uh, public health in the environment. And we are committed to being transparent and honest. Thank you very much. Keith. Thank you, John. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Jersey Spotlight for inviting us. Uh, I, my name is uh, Dr. Keith Cooper, and I actually uh, am a professor in toxicology at Rutgers University. Uh, I also uh, have the privilege to actually be the chair of the Drinking Water Quality Institute. And the Drinking Water Quality Institute is 
an institute which was literally founded out of the original uh, drinking water uh, statutes uh, back in the 80s. And those early uh, regulations set what the New Jersey Drinking Water Quality Institute would be able to do. We are a institute that makes recommendations to develop or make recommendations for MCLs, or maximum concentration levels for drinking water. Uh, this institute is made up of a number of different uh, partners. As, as Gary stated earlier, there are representatives from the New Jersey DEP, there are representatives from the New Jersey Department of Health, there are representatives which are from academia, as well as the community which is actually regulated. And we have several members here on the panel who are also part of the New Jersey Drinking Water Quality Institute. And that institute allows us to be able to look at both the health effects of various compounds which are found in drinking water, but it also allows us to look at what treatment availability is there. What is the current state of the art in being able to remove these compounds? And the other is, how can we detect these compounds in drinking water? And those are the three legs which we have to look at when we're doing the Drinking Water Quality Institute and an MCL. This concentration of an MCL can be driven by treatment, it can be driven by analytical, or it can be driven by health effects. The health effects can be actually determined to be lower than what we could actually detect either analytically or being able to achieve it with a treatment. And in those cases, what will normally happen is, is that either the treatment or the analytical will be, be set as the limit. That does not necessarily mean, however, that we will not necessarily revisit those compounds. Part of our charter does require us to go back in and look at various compounds over a period of time. Originally, it was supposed to be five years. That is not necessarily always the case. But they have been a number of these MCLs, which have been set by the Drinking Water Quality Institute over the years, have been reevaluated. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the PFOS compounds, one of the things that I'd like to say is, is that, as Gary has said and other people have, have stated, New Jersey has been at the cutting edge of this. And it's partially due to the fact that our state has the ability to go out and actually sample and do research where a lot of other states do not necessarily have that ability. Early on, when these compounds first started to emerge, and, and the thing which is important is, is that the PFOSs were known to be contaminants for many years because of the fact that they were known that they were distributed on a worldwide basis. And that was being detected in wildlife. So way before, even when we started looking or the New Jersey DEP started looking at these, there was information out there that these compounds were a problem because of their persistence. And what I'm gonna say is, is the reason why they are so persistent is, and I don't want to go deep into this, but what it is is that the way in which they are designed, 
they are designed not to be metabolized or broken down due to a fluoride bond to the carbon. It is specifically designed that way so that they will not break down. They also have the characteristic of the fact that they have a capability of being water-soluble. And they yet they can also be involved in attaching to lipids. So they have a lipid kind of a portion and a water-soluble component. And those compounds with the fact that they are so persistent, there is no known biological system which can break a carbon-fluoride bond. So everything which was produced over the past 50 years of these long-chain PFASs are going to be around for as long as we're here. The other issue is, is that the question was, where did they come from? These compounds were made and utilized because of their properties, of the fact that they were very effective in water resistance, water repellents. All of your 3M carpets, your, your materials which were used for production of your water resistant water repellents, those were some form of PFAS. There's a lot of the work which was done on a lot of the shoes which were used. So these compounds have found diverse uses. Uh, compounds which are used on car waxes, ski waxes, they have permeated into our everyday environment because they are stain resistant, they are persistent, and the military uses them in a lot of their materials because of the fact that they are very effective at putting out grease-type fires or airplane-type fires. So these are many of the point sources where you actually may have them either at a industrial site which is making the materials or at a site which is collecting materials to be landfilled or where you might have very active firefighting or military type of activities. So in reality, these compounds are designed to be persistent. And so the Drinking Water Quality Institute has looked at three of these compounds. One of the other com comments I'll make is the fact that, yes, the, these compounds have been pulled or stopped being manufactured in the United States. There are alternatives which are being utilized which probably have less toxicity studies done than we have even on the PFOA. So the alternatives are not necessarily less toxic. We know less about them. We also know, though, that those, because of their fluoride bonds, for the most part, will be still very persistent. One of the other arguments is, is that they are not as persistent in the human, in the blood. The longer chain PFASs normally have half-lives of years in the bloodstream. What that means is if you think about it, when you take an aspirin, you have 20 minutes or 30, you know, basically you have to take, I mean, not 30 minutes, if you take a aspirin or a Tylenol, you have to take it every three to five hours because half the half of that compound is gone 
and you have to get to a certain level. Think now of a compound which takes one to 10 years to clear out of your body. So that the half-life is 10 years or five years, and that's where a lot of the concern comes in. And there's a lot of toxicity which has been shown, uh, which as John indicated, that implicated in reproduction effects. Uh, and in many of the animal studies which were done, a lot of the toxicity which was shown was in early, early developmental effects and also in some instances with the epidemiology studies, it's also been shown to be associated with certain types of cancers. So I'll stop there and I'll pass it on. Thank you, Keith. Tracy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, New Jersey is the first to adopt a mandatory safe drinking water standard or an MCL for, for a PFAS, PFNA. And that's one of the most toxic perfluorinated compounds. And they did that in September of 2018, this year. New Jersey did this because EPA um, does not regulate it at the federal level. And uh, we do know that there are harmful health effects, as has been discussed here. And in New Jersey, uh, drinking water concentrations are above that associated with those that can generate disease or are associated with disease. And also, they've been found at greater, greater levels here in New Jersey than other states. Because they do persist in the environment, uh, even if no longer being used in manufacturing, it was critical for DEP to adopt, so people would no longer be exposed to it in their water. Importantly, DEP also added PFNA when they adopted the MCL to the New Jersey hazardous substances list and established a groundwater standard that's being used to clean up sites polluted with a compound. Very important to clean up the sources of this pollution or we'll always be playing catch up with trying to get it out of our drink water, drinking water. It took four years from the time the Drinking Water Quality Institute recommended the MCL for PFNA of 13 parts per trillion to the time DEP finally adopted it. This prolonged process resulted in landmark regulation of national significance, setting an example for the federal government and other states. And we've heard it all over the place being talked about as the standard and New Jersey being the, late, the leader. Um, but New Jersey at this time, uh, that was long coming, and at this time is inexplicably delaying uh, new regulation to regulate the two other PFASs, PFOA and PFOS, that the Drinking Water Quality Institute has studied and recommended MCLs for. Now that was uh, PFOA in March of 2017, PFOS May of 2018. DEP announced in 2017 uh, after the fall, after the Drinking Water Quality Institute uh, made their recommendation, that they accepted the Drinking Water Quality Institute's recommendation. And they're going to issue rulemaking and adopt it, but it just hasn't happened. And it makes no sense. New Jersey has done its homework. Our current studies, sampling, Drinking Water Quality Institute scientists completed their risk assessment approach to both developed health-based MCLs, as we've heard from Keith Cooper, evaluated and approved treatment methods, and handed the MCLs basically on a silver, silver platter to DEP. DEP even issued new fish consumption advisories for PFOS, PFOA, and PFNA, advising limits on eating fish from certain New Jersey waters. But still, no regulation requiring these dangerous chemicals to be removed from our drinking water. 
This is important because while 216 of New Jersey's 580 public water systems have been tested, many have not. So people could still be drinking contaminated water and not even know it. We can't look to the federal government for help. EPA is not going to adopt a federal MCL, not in the foreseeable future. They haven't done one since the mid-1990s, and what they have in place is a health advisory level that is not protective in Delaware Riverkeeper Network's position of human health, yet it is being used by states and the Department of Defense as a trigger for treatment at sites such as the McGuire Dix Lakehurst site and other New Jersey sites. Ten of them have been identified by the state of New Jersey as military sites that used firefighting foams in our state. This slide behind me, I don't know if it's up there yet, John. Is it there? Oh, okay. So if you can look at this slide when it comes up. Um, you got it? Okay, I'm in the way. <laughs> Um, this slide from the, the Drinking Water Quality Institute and also the 2017 peer-reviewed paper by Dr. Gloria Post, another New Jersey scientist, shows that the EPA health advisory level of 70 parts per trillion will allow a five to eight-fold increase in the blood level of PFOA because it and other PFAS compounds build up in the blood from very tiny concentrations in drinking water which is the major pathway of exposure, elevating the risk of disease because the levels increase beyond those known to have adverse health effects. This slide tells a big story. And the story, the bottom line on that story is that EPA's health advisory level cannot be relied upon to protect our public drinking water supplies. Federal regulation of PFAS is essential in order to provide equity among all water users in all states. Anything less is simply unjust, but we don't think it's going to happen, particularly under this administration, in the foreseeable future. This leaves the essential work to protect public health to the states and local jurisdictions. Some places it's the municipal level that's taking the action that's needed. In fact, that moved uh, the uh, through the borough of Paulsboro, that moved uh, the, the company that was considered to be responsible, Solvay, to provide treatment as, as, after they received a notice of intent to sue. And we're going to hear more about that from other panelists. But those local jurisdictions and the states make it, are making it imperative that New Jersey DEP adopt MCLs for PFOA and PFOS immediately. So not another day goes by that people in our state have to worry if their families and themselves are being exposed to PFAS, risking disease, or lifelong harms. I'd like to say that New Jersey drink, uh, uh, Delaware Riverkeeper Network has been working on these problems posed by the presence of fluorinated, perfluorinated compounds in our local environment since about 2005. And that's when our staff collected tap water samples in the neighborhoods close to DuPont's Chambers Works facility in Deepwater, New Jersey. Um, that's, that's, as you know, on the Delaware River. Uh, we suspected that there may be a problem because of news reports uh, about attorney Robert Bellot's lawsuit that had been brought in West Virginia against DuPont for releasing PFOA into the environment there. 
Our sampling revealed the presence of PFOA in the drinking water being used by people in the local community. We notified those whose tap water that we had sampled and we sent it to the state of New Jersey. Now, local government action, coalitions, exposés, and years of work later, New Jersey is a nationally recognized leader. But we cannot afford to allow backsliding at this critical moment. We're advocating as strongly as we can that New Jersey move ahead with the essential rulemaking to actually adopt MCLs for PFOA and PFOS and get those toxic compounds out of the drinking water of every New Jerseyan. Thank you very much. Uh, Rich. Thank you. Um, I don't think there's much more to say. You all did a great introduction. Um, except, except to give you a municipal perspective of how you deal with all this. Um, so I represent Richard Water on the director of operations. We're a utility located up in northwest Bergen County. We serve four municipalities, the village of Ridgewood, borough of Glenrock, borough of Midland Park, and the township of Wyckoff. All in total, about 61,000 customers in those four towns, including Valley Hospital, several other yard, large users as well. We're one of the top 25 biggest utilities in the state because of the area that we serve. Uh, from my perspective tonight and why I'm here, is to kind of lend a little bit of our experience to, to these issues um, because we found ourselves in the midst of the EPA numbers and then at one point very soon thereafter the state promulgating numbers that were very much lower. So how do you, how do you deal with that and how do you deal with the public you know, with that to, to avoid the, the fear that's in their minds and let them understand what this contaminant is and how you're going to take care of it. In, in our case, we went public voluntarily we sent out notices to every single customer and held forums in all four of our towns to answer questions relative to these issues and how our utility was going to handle it. Believe it or not, those public forums were no different than tonight. Seats were empty. It surprises me how pertinent of issue this is, but yet not many people want to come out to talk about it. Yet our phones still ring every day with people wanting to know why it's in the water and what we're doing about it. But when you want to approach them face to face, they don't come out and, and ask the real questions that they should. So tonight, I, I hope via John's you know, panel questions to give you our successes and unsuccesses so you could all kind of learn from where we need to go with this. Because um, for me, it's, it's all about educating the public. Because in, in our particular case, we can't even shut off some of the sources of our water because the purchased water providers that we get water from also have it in their water. So we're in kind of catch-22 uh, situation. Uh, so we're working very closely you know, with the DEP and our public to maintain transparent um, communication about our plans. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Rich. Thank you, John. Uh, just to follow up on, on Rich's comments, I, I represent the, the other part of the uh, public utility, and that's the investor-owned companies. You ask yourself, why does a company like American Water, specifically New Jersey American Water, get involved in a fray like this? And, and we were invited to the table because we are a statewide provider. We have a, a diverse por uh, portfolio of water sources across you know, all 21 counties in the state of New Jersey. We serve, as you heard earlier, well over 190 community supplies. We, we operate 35 water systems in the state of New Jersey. We have the seven, probably the seven largest surface water treatment plants. Um, 
Our mission statement, our corporate mission statement is water for life. Think about that statement, water for life. It encompasses a lot of things and a lot of what you heard already from the previous panelists. You know, we, we all recognize that the establishment of a physical and chemical water treatment and subsequent water quality regulations and monitoring frameworks in the U.S. and, and elsewhere have fundamentally driven improved quality and safety of, of drinking water. Um, New Jersey American and American water, um, we, we see a need for the continued enhancement um, that's dictated by an expanding list of environmental contaminants and the ability uh, of technology which allows us improved uh, detection limits. Um, we, we along, you know, I became a part of this panel probably, uh, I became part of the Drinking Water Quality Institute probably about 10 years ago. Prior to becoming a member, I was an active attendee, and early in my career, I'm, I'm 30 years in the business now as a licensed operator. Early in my career, you know, I realized that we had to plan and prepare for emerging contaminants. And, and being a part of the Drinking Water Quality Institute, both as a, an attendee and a part, participant, has allowed me to to garner knowledge and information and bring it back to my utility and share with the people in power so that we can properly plan and capitalize our infrastructure investment. A lot, of, a lot of times we hear about infrastructure investment, we all think about pipe replacements, you know, the water main, what we see happening in the street. It's, it's what we don't see uh, that, can, that can really harm us and in the public health aspect of it. Think of PFOA as a co colorless, odorless contaminant. If I didn't tell you it was in your water, you wouldn't know it. Okay, and you heard a little bit earlier um, about the bioaccumulation and the ability for PFASs to, um, over time, clear themselves from the human body. But what you what you also heard, and you may not have have paid particular attention, is PFASs will be in the environment forever. Where are they accumulating? They're accumulating in the air, the soil, and the water. That's that same water for life. Think of that statement, water for life. So we're committed as, as, a, as an investor-owned company to um, invest in technology. You know, I told you our, our mission statement is water for life. Uh, two of our five uh, corporate values include environmental leadership and operational excellence and technology. And those, those two words, operational excellence and technology, go together. There, there's a reason why they're one value, because we recognize that in order to have operational excellence, we have to consider new technology and bring that into, uh, again, our portfolio. We, we, we treat many different waters. We, we, we have exposure to many different contaminants. Um, we have access to a market that reacts to the needs of the water industry. So people bring forward to us new technologies and, and we are, have the benefit to be able to pilot it not only here in New Jersey, but across the U.S. So those geographic and regional differences uh, come into play uh, in the market uh, and the market needs. And the market comes to us as a willing, uh, a willing participant in, in the piloting of new technology and the implementation. So, you know, we, we recognize, again, that PFAS chemicals have poisoned our water, our air, our soils, and our food. Um, virtually at this point, all Americans have this contaminant in their bloodstreams. 
Um, in response to this public uh, pressure and growing concerns for the health effects of PFOA, PFOS, New Jersey American Water voluntarily undertook uh, some treatment uh, changes in, in a few of our systems. One of the systems uh, that we did take over early in 2006 was the Pensgrove system. You didn't hear that mentioned. It's in South Jersey. It was probably one of the first sites uh, where they found PFOA and PFOS. The, uh, the uh, owners, the independent owners of that uh, South, was the South Jersey Water Supply Company, didn't have the wherewithal to deal with the uh, challenges that it was going to face with this new emerging contaminants. And New Jersey American took on that opportunity and acquired that system knowing that they were acquiring a problem. And, and we were committed to working through the problem with the customers and the public using the information and knowledge of the shared resources that we had access to to affect change in that community and bring forward uh, uh, good, clean water and water for life. So that's our commitment to this process and that's why we're here. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I would like to kick off the, uh, the Q&A session here. Uh, and by the way, uh, thank you. Some of you have, have uh, submitted written questions. I would encourage you to, uh, uh, any others, uh, to please feel free to, uh, to send them up uh, as, you, as they occur. Uh, so I'd like to kick off the Q&A by, uh, by giving Gary a chance to respond to Tracy's, um, uh, uh, Tracy's questions about the length of time uh, that it takes to process the, uh, the DWQI's recommendations. Yes, uh, thank you, Tracy. I know you're an environmental advocate, and I um, appreciate that and encourage you to continue. Uh, a couple points I'd like to make. Uh, yeah, Tracy pointed out it took like four years to get the PFNA out. Uh, one thing we have done was we have shared the MCL recommendations with those water systems that have either PFO or PFOS contamination. And as uh, Anthony just said, many of them have already taken action, even though there is no requirement to do that. Many of these systems have either taken wells offline that are contaminated, they have blended waters to reduce the contamination, or put on treatment systems. So even though there is no MCL out there to, to control or dictate that these have to be removed, many systems have already taken care of that. Uh, the other thing too is under EPA, the UCMR, it's a uncontaminated uh, monitoring rule. They did a nationwide study back in 2013 to 2015. All water systems with greater than 10,000 Residents or users have had to be sampled for the PFAS compounds. And as John mentioned, about 10% of those in New Jersey had contamination for PFOA versus less than two nationwide. So that meant 90% of them didn't. So that's the good news. And finally, yes, uh, state government does not move quickly. It takes time to get things right. We want to use the right science, the best available science. We want to consider all the options. We need to talk to our stakeholders. For PFOA, there were stake at least one stakeholder meeting, and there will be additional ones uh, in the future. We also have to look at costs. As part of uh, any new uh, proposed regulation for new standards, there's a requirement to look at economic costs. What are the costs? 
for those who have to test? Is there adequate laboratories around that are certified that can do these tests? Uh, what was it going to cost to do the treatment? So all these economic costs have to be considered. Um, but again, at the end of the day, New Jersey has been one of the most protective, and we plan on continuing in that vein to protect the public against these compounds. Uh, so, so just to be clear, Gary, are you saying that the, uh, that the protracted period that we've seen um, in, in implementing the DWQI's recommendations, are you saying that that's unavoidable to, to have a delay of, you know, for that period of those periods of time? Again, it depends on uh, the information we have and what the impacts are. Um, once you propose a rule, you have up to a year to finalize it. So right then and there, it could take a year just to get it finalized. You also have to plan ahead and, and get multiple approvals. The uh, uh, Attorney General's office has to review. They have to post this in New Jersey Register. That all takes time, so it all adds up. Are there, are there ways of speeding it up? Do you think it should be speeded up? Well, if it could be, that would be great, but that's uh, a little above my pay grade right now. <laughs> Okay, so thank you very much. Uh, Tracy, did you want to respond? I just wanted to say a couple things about that. Um, first of all, um, the, the, the heavy lifting has really been done by the Drinking Water Quality Institute. So I think you agree with that. You work at the science, you run the science division. And, and so the New Jersey scientists and the others that take part in those deliberations really have done their risk assessment, they've crunched the numbers, they looked at the treatment, they looked at the reporting levels, they've figured all the hard stuff out. And that science is actually being used by other states um, just as it is. California just proposed to adopt the exact MCLs that were recommended by the Drinking Water Quality Institute for PFOA and PFOS uh, based on the science done by the Drinking Water Quality Institute. So there are states using that information and immediately stepping out. Now, they have not taken it to an MCL yet, but they've adopted it as a guidance level. Um, so that's pretty fast work. And that's the kind of work we need in order to address what we consider to be a water crisis. The other thing is that um, the reporting level in the uh, unregul unregulated contaminant monitoring rule um, that EPA used was artificially high. Um, as we heard from Dr. Cooper, uh, the levels that can be measured now are much, much lower. We're down into parts per trillion, parts per quadrillion. Um, the technology has just advanced tremendously. And we're also dealing with chemicals that are so toxic, they have to be measured at that level in order to set a standard that's safe for drinking water. So the, the fact that the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule um, found a certain percent of systems that had a presence of PFOA or PFOS or other PFASs um, it does not give me comfort because the reporting level was so high that many, many systems uh, were missed. And there's a, some very good information about that um, on a couple, in a couple of scientific papers and slideshows, um, and we can provide that you know, afterwards. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have to look at the health costs. We can't just talk about the cost of implementation. And I know New Jersey has done that because they adopted the PFNA. Um, and they made it uh, easier on, on the uh, drinking water suppliers because there's a phase in. Um, you monitor first. And, and then it, only if you find it um, do you have to actually treat for it. 
And so I think there are a lot of ways to soften the blow in terms of cost, but you have to think about your, your health costs and what the people are paying in order to catch up should they develop a disease that could be associated with their exposure. Mm -hmm. And finally, we have multiple benefits from the PFNA rule. I don't think um, many people realize that all these systems are going to have to be uh, monitored. They use the same method as PFOA and PFOS, and New Jersey did advise the water systems to test for all of them and keep that information because it can bring their costs down once PFOA and PFOS rules are adopted. So that's a multiple benefit there, and it does cut into the cost that will be associated with those MCL adoptions. Thanks. Uh, so, Keith, would you like to jump in at this point? I mean, as, as a part of the, uh, the, the early part of the regulatory process, if you like? I mean, I, I, in other words, can, can, can your part of this be speeded up in, in some way? Yeah, I think that one of the things that also happened over the time period that we were dealing with reestablishing the Drinking Water Quality Institute and getting it back into a very good working mode uh, since 2009 was that we actually had to make sure that we were following the law and that we were also, in a way, we were also setting up a, an approach that would be used for all new compounds which are coming in front of the uh, Drinking Water Quality Institute. And the reason why that becomes important is because federally, as well as, as we learn more and more information, there's, there has been a big movement to make sure that we evaluate a lot of different literature. And we actually do an evaluation of the literature and the data which is supporting our particular findings. That takes, still takes time. But however, I think that what, what we found is, is that it took us a little bit of while for the PFNA. The PFOA and the PFOS moved much quicker, partly because of the fact that we had already learned how to address a lot of the uh, pitfalls that we had fallen into previously about getting data, evaluating the data, and things like that. Uh, so yes, we, are, we have the ability now to be able to crank through these uh, new compounds or chemicals of concern at a quicker rate. Because in reality, the other thing that we did in the Drinking Water Quality Institute that we, this was actually due to stakeholder, they really wanted to have input. So what we've done is that all of our meetings are open, all of our meetings are put on the web, all of our meetings are open to the public to come in and ask questions. And that's the public, all stakeholders, industry and everybody else can come in and we can have an open discussion. So yes, in that way. And, and, and I will, I will um, step into this a little bit about the policy side. In, in some ways, the policy issues are also driven by legislation and what the requirements are for open time periods for being able to have a notification period and that. So they're in the, what people don't understand sometimes is that, is that these time frames are in some ways dictated by the legislature and what the law which they're working under is. I would like to see them go a little faster. 
There's no question about that. And I think that you will see these coming out. But the other thing that I will compliment them on, the DEP, is the fact that I know of no other organization across the country, federal or state, that has taken the idea of looking at the concentrations across multimedia. That is a huge step in looking at these particular contaminants, whether you're talking about them from a, because we always get in these channels where we're looking at drinking water or we're looking at soil or we're looking at, at what your fabric or your food is. Well, in actual fact, all of us are exposed across all of those media. And if you don't have a, a uniform approach to evaluate that, then you get into problems. And they have been working actually very well on that. And I, and I complimented Gary earlier on about the fish advisory. We, and the New Jersey, and I can't say we, I can, well, I'm a state holder, I'm a citizen. So I was very proud about the fact that the state actually is the first state in the country to actually set up fish advisories for these particular compounds, which are, it, it's huge. We're ahead of Michigan, we're ahead of California, and so in that respect, you have to look at it is that the DEP isn't that big, but they certainly do a lot of work, and I'll give them that, that credit. Thank you very much. Um, Gary, point to make. please. The other point I wanted to make is we actually have our, uh, our science advisory board looking at this issue of contaminants of emerging concern. As you may or may not know, there's 80,000 chemicals in commerce today, and we only have MCLs or other standards for a handful. And if we look at each of these individually, it'll take, you know, thousand years or so to deal with them all. So we're asking them, is there another way we can look at these, look at these in, in, as classes of compounds, look at these as treatment techniques that will deal with suites of these compounds instead of looking at it individually, because it does take just too long. Um, so I'd just like to, uh, to change gears a bit here, and, I, and, and uh, thank you for all the questions. Um, the first one I've just picked up here, and this is specifically for you, Anthony. Uh, how often does New Jersey American test for the PFAS compound listed in the EPA's UCMR3 group? So New Jersey American, uh, that is a good question. New Jersey American does monitor, it, it, just so you know, in, in my role as the functional lead for water quality and environmental management, uh, I'm responsible for uh, water quality monitoring and reporting. That includes regulated and unregulated compounds. Uh, also laboratory, coordinating laboratory services, both in-house and contractual, and also the environmental permitting and planning aspects, which, inclu which include uh, capital planning. Um, so the question is how often, and we, we in New Jersey American sample for the full suite of PFASs, which is beyond the UCMM, UCMR4 requirements. Uh, our suite is 14 compounds. Uh, the UCMR, I believe, was 11. So we do go beyond that. So we're doing it monthly at every one of our source waters and our, our, our port of entry. So many of our well fields consist of multiple wells. 
they come together in a manifold and then go out to the distribution th through one distribution system through one point of entry. So we monitor the wells individually and collectively the point of entry. So I can have 11 wells with very low uh, contributions and that contribution culminates in a point of entry. So I'm getting two looks at this. I can also tell in a well field which is a hot well and based on what we know about the depth and the size of that well, we may be able to take that well out of service and prolong the use of the well field uh, while not taking on or, or drawing in more PFOA or PFOS. So I, I think that answers your question. Thank you. Uh, Rich, would you like to jump in and, and give us your take on, the, on really the same question? Sure. Because yeah, we're a much smaller utility, uh, we're monitoring on a quarterly basis. Uh, we have to rely on an outside lab and some cases which require shipping our samples uh, to places like North Carolina or Florida. Um, but we hear that locally there are labs starting to open up with the certification for this testing. Um, and because we're a groundwater system and we have very large fluctuations in demand, uh, we have a winter demand that averages about 5 million gallons a day. The summertime it could go upwards of 17 million gallons a day. So you're talking about a system right now where we might only have five points of entry active. In the summertime, 21 of them are active. So although we're monitoring on a quarterly basis, we're not capturing data from every single point of entry. What we found quarterly has been effective for us so far, just on the basis of how we operate. And, and what are you monitoring for specifically? Same suite 14 compounds. I see. Uh, we're also considering with our next round to add in uh, Generation X compounds and um, others that have become the replacement chemicals for the PFO and PFOS. Right, right. Um, well, I think we do want to get into that top topic, actually. But before we do, I, I think uh, Anthony is, has got another. I, 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 I'm I, sorry, Rich, had you finished? Did you finish? Uh, just one, one more thing I want to I'm add. Sorry. I think, you know, everybody here touched on a little bit. but. This difference between the federal government and the state government is a huge vacuum. And now the states are filling that, that vacuum. New Jersey's taking a huge lead. But then you have places like Cape Fear, North Carolina. They have a standard for Generation X. But they don't have anything for PFOA or PFOS. So somehow or another, the nation needs to get together and promulgate you know, a standard that's uniform that we could all work off. Rich, Rich brought up a, a good point earlier in that there is competition for the commercial lab space. And the implementation of the monitoring rule was actually spread out over two years so that the, the commercial lab capabilities could handle the demands that were being put on them by the private utilities. Um, in, in our case, uh, we, we maintain our own uh, central lab out in um, Belleville, Illinois. And one of the first things we did in recognition of the uh, PFOA standards and the UCMR, more specifically UCMR, um, was develop the in-house capabilities so that we can sample more of our sources on a more frequent basis and remove our, uh, our, our workload from the commercial lab space to allow others to have access to that space so that simultaneously we can develop that information and bring it forward. The other thing I will tell you is all of the information that we generate in our monitoring programs, we share it with the DEP. So that they have, they have more, they probably have more data available to them 
than the federal government has for the rulemaking process. I'd like to move on to the next question from the audience, and that is, uh, well, this is kind of a three-part question here, and I, I guess you may all have uh, some response to this. Why haven't some systems been tested for these contaminants? Are the tests difficult or expensive? And are these the type of tests a homeowner could afford to do? Would anybody like to have a go at that, Rich? Since I'm holding the mic. Yes, please. <laughs> yes. First, um, yeah. The tests are expensive, um, in particular when you're involved with having to ship them to Illinois or Carolina. Uh, the other part of it, the uh, sampling is not easy. Um, the sampler has to follow very strict guidelines. Um, we, we often make fun of our samplers because when they sample for PFAS, they can't eat and they can't wear deodorant. So they're hungry and stinky when they go and sample. But, but unfortunately, because these contaminants are in so much of what we use every day, they're in this room right now, you have the chance of cross-contaminating that sample. So we take very strong precautions when we sample. That takes time, takes money, and personnel to do that. Anybody else want to address that? I, I would just say, on average, a, a PFAS sample runs anywhere from $375 to $500 a sample. And uh, one of the other things I'll add to the laboratory capabilities, initially the, the USAMR laboratory and the, and the, uh, and the uh, research method that was being used only allowed you to uh, see down to 20 parts per trillion. Uh, new technology, new methods have allowed us to actually see down and report out uh, with some level of confidence down to about two parts per trillion, which is below and supports the standard that we have here in New Jersey. Thank you. Uh, there's another question here which picks up on a, an, an issue that um, I, I think Rich raised a few minutes ago, and this is are short-chain short PFAS compounds less toxic than the long-chain PFAS compounds C8 and up? Uh, I don't know whether Keith would like to address this to, to, to start with. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate you not taking this. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, to be honest with you, the one of the things that you have to remember is that each one of these new alternatives that they're coming out with has their and own actually, I'm sorry, Keith, to interrupt, but, it, but maybe we could just step back a little bit and just and just uh, tell the audience what these short-chain oh, compounds sorry. are. Sorry. So yes. what these short-chain compounds are is the fact that we consider long-chain compounds from basically they have six carbons or greater in length. So that's what they call long-chain. So PFOS, PFOA, PFNA... And hexa is considered long chain. What the alternatives are is they're normally shorter chained compounds still having fluorides on them. So they're still resistant to breakdown, but they've put either oxygens in between the carbons or they've put a different group on them. The question comes in is, is that many times these have not really been tested in rodent species. They have not gone through a full tox screen. They may have gone through what we call a, a basically a QSAR study or a basically looking at the structure activity relationship. But in actual fact, some of the early 
studies which have been done in rodents on when we were talking about Gen X, which is one of the substitutes which has been used, it seems to be extremely toxic as well. So it's a good example of where an alternative that they thought was going to be less toxic appears to be equal toxic. So it may have a shorter half-life, but it's still showing some of the same effects. Part of the problem is that the mechanism by which these compounds are interacting at the cell level overlap. In other words, they have similar mechanisms, even though they're shorter. So the toxicity is, may still be present, even though they're only present for a shorter period of time. So in reality, we know very little about the toxicity associated with many of these shorter chain uh, PFASs. I wanted to add just one thing. Um, from the public point of view, uh, one of the problems we have here is that at the federal level, thousands and thousands of chemicals are allowed to be used um, in our products, um, used um, throughout various manufacturing processes uh, without being tested. And this is really a problem because we do not know what the toxicity is of those compounds. And the public is really upset that they have been drinking sometimes for decades uh, PFOS and PFOA, where firefighting foams were used, for instance, by, uh, at military facilities. And the, the problem is, is that nobody had done the testing. Uh, we actually think the military may have had an inkling that there was some toxicity there, but there's, there's a lot of argument going on about that. The bottom line is that the testing wasn't done and made public, and the people don't know what they're drinking. And that's one of the root of the problems that we have here. And also, the fact that the Gen X and the replacements are being found in the environment, that's the problem. Because how are they getting out there? I mean, they have not improved the systems that prevent the release of these substances into the environment. Th this is a, another big problem that needs to be addressed and is not being addressed by the replacement compound use. Thank you. Um, Gary, did you want to jump in on the, on the, short, the short chain issue? I mean, is there any... is, is is the DEP, is there any policy coming up to, to address that, those, those issues? I mean, if they're just, if they're just as, as toxic as the long chain, then... Um... Well, we're, we're certainly concerned about it. My staff uh, continues to look at the literature to see what we can find out, what's coming out on the toxicity. But as Keith said, there isn't a lot. And actually, some of these compounds, replacement compounds, we don't even know what they're using because it's confidential business information. So that's a problem. <clears throat> Mm. How do you test for something when you don't know what they're using? Indeed. Well, uh, and, and this, uh, this leads us on. I'm sorry, well, do you want to? Yeah, yeah, one other comment is that lots of times, it's, what Gary uh, indicated is that in many instances, in order for us to, to identify what it is, we actually have to have standards. And one of the limitations is, is the fact that there are not necessarily current standards for the alternatives which are out there. And that's a, that is a huge consideration. Remember that the, the, one of the legs that we have to have in the Drinking Water Quality Institute is an ability 
to have a reliable detection method. Without good standards, you don't have that. Uh, moving on to another audience question here, which I, which I think is uh, it, it, it's related to what we were just saying. Um, it says, we started with PFAR and PFOS, then six PFAS under UCMR3. Labs can now report 20 to 30 PFAS compounds. And here's the question, is it time to have a total PFAS list and a total PFAS standard, such as what was done with PCBs and other compounds? Uh, look, Anthony, you look like you want to answer that one. Yeah. So um, that's a great question. Um, EPA um, just released a, a, a long-awaited assessment on PFASs, and the data in the assessment uh, confirms much of the New Jersey findings and at the levels of, and are recommending the levels of, of, of restriction or, or compliance that we, we have put forward here in New Jersey. Um, one, one of, you know, in addition to that, um, the, the, uh, the report also reported out on what, what I saw in an article termed as regrettable substitutions. Recognizing that PFOA and PFOS was being targeted, industry quickly changed to a, to a, uh, a short-chain uh, replacement, a, a short-chain polymer, only four carbons, based on the fact that they believed that it would, uh, it was thought to be eliminated by the, bo by the body faster, but what they did find was it's, it has a lot of the same health effects as the legacy of PFAS, that being PFOA or PFOS. Um, so th there is definitely a good deal of concern. I can also confirm that the state of New Jersey has begun to look at the, uh, the, uh, the uh, alternative uh, chemicals being used, the, the replacement chemicals. And I know from a fact, I know from, a, from, I know from the fact that New Jersey American is actually participating at a couple of its systems to look for and look at uh, these, these, uh, these substitute compounds. So there is definitely something on the table and something in the works towards uh, addressing these, uh, again, okay. regrettable substitutes. Thank you. Uh, somebody is asking, is there a map of affected municipalities and does Newark have PFAS PFNA? Uh, would anybody like to address those? Uh, do we have a map um, <laughs> publicly available? Is this in the? Yeah, this is public. Okay, there is a, a map showing detections from the 2006 and 2009 through 10, as well as some of the UCMR data. Uh, most of the detections have been um, in, in sort of the industrial corridor, from uh, the northeast to the southwest. You know, including. Um, uh, Camden County, Gloucester County. Um, what was the other part of the question? Uh, well, uh, does Newark have have PFAS slash PFNA? Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head. No, I don't remember it being detected there. So, but you know, unless you know, the American is a neighbor of, yeah. of the North Water System, and we often work closely with the administration down there in dealing with some of their water quality issues. I'm not aware of a, of a PFC issue in Nork. Um, the reason, you know, one of the things you have to recognize is that 
the, the Nork uh, watershed is in a highly protected area in northern New Jersey, and they do not have a groundwater system. While, while PFCs are prevalent in groundwater and groundwater contamination because of its mobility through the soil and, and the aquifers, um, it doesn't mean that surface water systems are, are, are um, shielded from it in any way because we do see through air deposition PFNA and PFOS and other PFCs showing up in some of our surface waters. But I believe because of its location strategically up in the highlands area of New Jersey in that protected uh, watershed, they don't see it uh, in Newark. Not, and I've got relatives in Newark and I see the consumer confidence notice and I have not seen it listed in their consumer confidence notice. And, and John, one other point about yeah. the, uh, uh, the other question. There's, depending on where, what you look, what reference you look at, there's either over 3,000 or 4,000 uh, perfluorinated compounds out there. They're not all being used, but they've been created. Uh, so the idea of uh, almost uh, a TEQ or a toxic equivalent for these does make sense, but we won't be able to do that until we have a lot more toxicity information about, I guess, probably, I'm looking at Keith, maybe the top. 20 or 50 or 100? Yeah. I think, I, th I think, you know, the thing is, Gary, Gary indicated earlier that um, there's a group of us who are working uh, to look at the idea of looking at, at treatment or approaches on a by class basis. And in some ways, the PFAS's lend themselves to that type of an approach, especially for the most commonly used ones, where you can actually start to get an indication of relative uh, toxicity. The biggest question right at the moment is, what is your specific endpoint? When we were doing it with PCBs or with dioxins, we had a very specific mechanism that we were looking at. Now, the PFASs, it may be that the interaction with certain types of transporters may actually be the mechanism by which you might be able to rank them. But that is, that is in the beginning. This is in the beginning of what we're talking about. But this is the approach you really have to take when you have a large class of compounds like these. That, that are basically ubiquitous. I mean, I, I had to laugh because one of the, one of the comments that, that was made earlier is that they can't eat. I mean, you probably didn't realize it, but that plastic, but when you used to do your popping of your popcorn on top of the stove, that plat, that, that waxy material on the inside was PFAS or PFAOA. So it's utilized in foods, it's utilized in a lot of different areas that you have no idea that you're being exposed to. So, it, to be honest, looking at these on a toxicity equivalence is a good idea. We just have to know a little bit more about the actual mechanism by which they're affecting it. And they do seem to have certain types of effects which do, do go across species. And one of the things that was really important in the in the Drinking Water Quality Institute was the fact that, yes, we looked at epidemiology studies, but we also looked at the rodent studies. And what you could see, which was the concordance, or what we call similar effects that you're actually seeing in model systems, 
and in humans. And I used to always tell people, and if they're epidemiologists out there, I apologize. I used to say that if you see a significant effect in an epidemiology study, you better start running for the hills because there's normally so many caveats in them that it's very difficult to get a good correlation. Now, the prospective studies need to be done for cause and effect relationships, but the, core, the concordance between what we saw in the rodent studies with what we saw from the PFOA studies, which were done in basically uh, in West Virginia, and some of those studies were striking. And the other point I want to make is, is that the idea of looking at the blood levels in the people is extremely important because that tells you what you're being exposed to. Now, certain people will sit there and argue and say, well, you know, you've got two or three people who are really high and then other people who are all down here and low. The average is okay. Well, the real question is, why are those people so high? And are those people really at much greater risk for some, for some reason? It may not be that their exposure is greater. It may be that they have a, either a genetic disposition to accumulate that more. So it's a very, I can talk talks all day, so I'll stop. <laughs> yeah. um, John, I just wanted to add one piece of good news is that the granular act activated carbon treatment, the reverse osmosis, these are actually very effective treatments for the long chain, uh, yeah. long chain PFAS. Um, so that class is actually removed. And once, you, once they start putting it in for PFNA, they're going to be removing the PFOA, the PFOS with that same system. So we're, we're, in, a good, we're in good shape in terms of treatment. And, and how much does it, would it cost an individual householder to, to install such a system? Does anybody know? That, that d depends on their preference. Um, you know, the best in-house treatment, I believe, is reverse osmosis, but you got to remember that that's forcing the water through essentially like a piece of cellophane, kind of capture everything. And what that then has to do is backwash that out. So you use, you lose about 20, 30 percent of the water in that process. And where's that going? The sewer treatment plant that probably dumps into a stream that another water authority draws their source water from. So we have to be very careful about, you know, what we tell people to do. Uh, but systems like that can be very expensive, but they are effective. And on the issue of costs, and, and I, I guess perhaps you, you could uh, kick this one off, Rich. I mean, you know, what, what, what are the costs uh, to, to your authority of, of, uh, of monitoring and treating for these chemicals? And, and, uh, and are you passing those costs on to your ratepayers? Well, there, there are capital costs and then there's operation and maintenance costs. And you have to extend those operation and maintenance costs across decades because you're going to be treating for a long time. Um, to give you an example, um, we have a, a well field of about uh, five wells that produce about a million gallons a day. Um, we had to do a feasibility study, design treatment, which is going to be granulated activated carbon. Um, we have spent in excess of about three and a half million dollars already on that uh, project alone. That's just capital investment. Uh, we have 27 points of entry, so you could do the math and figure out where 
a system like ours will be at the end of the day having installed treatment at every point but of But again, I mean, have those costs, have any of those costs been passed on to your ratepayers? Of course. Yeah, the, the capital has to be, you know, either by loans or mm. if you happen to be in a good shape and have surplus, you're still drawing that balance down and eventually, you know, the ratepayers will have to make up the difference. Um, uh, so, I, I mean, and I'd, I'd like just to change the uh, tune a little bit here. I'd just like to turn to the, po the policy aspect of this. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about how the, uh, the, the federal government is, uh, is, is behind the curve here. We don't know whether they're going to be catching up. Uh, if, the, if the EPA comes out and says that, in fact, it does want, it does think that uh, PFOA and PFOS uh, should be regulated, uh, then, of course, that's subject to the usual delays in in, uh, in federal regu federal regulation, so so uh, my question is whether uh, this really effectively means that the that that it's the states that will continue to to lead the charge uh, on on regulating these chemicals, or perhaps it's it's uh, perhaps the onus falls on even more locally than that on on muni municipalities. So I'd like to hear what you all think about some, those things. Some brief comments, and I and I think. The EPA may have tipped their hand a little bit when they first came out with a uh, standard for PFOA and PFOS combined together. They put out 70 parts per trillion for the combined contaminant. They acknowledge that PFOA, PFOS generally don't exist in the environment independent of each other. They're actually part of a of a of a bigger I'll call it a toxic soup for, for a lack of a better term, but their recent report um, that they released that I referenced earlier, um, they, their data showed that, that we're being exposed to multiple PFASs at a time and that we should really consider toxicity from exposure to multiple PFASs in a cumulative matter, you know, low levels of 14 different uh, 14 different compounds, what, is that, what does that amount to? You know, a lot of the work that we've done in the science looks at each one of these compounds independently as if it's the only one that you're being exposed to. But nobody's taken the opportunity to look at the, the collective or cumulative effect of, of it all. Um, you know, the, the, the assessment went on to, to provide more uh, evidence that we need to regulate a whole class of chemicals. Um, you know, if we regulate only a handful you know, there, there's, again, that swift, uh, regrettable, regrettable substitution opportunity. And, 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 and we wind up playing a game that's akin to, and to coin the phrase from an article I just read, whack-a-mole. You know, an emerging contaminant shows his head. We pound it with science. Then we grind it through the, the regulatory process, and we get a standard for that contaminant. And if we're going to do that each and every time, contaminant by contaminant, we may be at risk longer than we all choose to be. And maybe we need a different approach. Uh, so uh, so you're, are, you advocating, are you advocating uh, legislation then to, to achieve that on the I state level? I think we should be what? looking at PFAS as a class of chemicals in its totality and not an individual or contaminant by contaminant. Um, Gary, do you have any views on that? Well, let me talk about your original question. Uh, 
New Jersey is not going to wait for the federal government, for EPA, to set MCLs. Um, they, for example, Lisa Jackson, who used to be our commissioner, when she was administrator for EPA, I think in 2010, said within two years she'd have an MCL for hexavalent chromium. Here it is, 2018. They still haven't issued a draft. So we're not going to wait uh, for EPA. We're going to continue to protect the public health uh, by issuing MCLs. I just wanted to add that um, it's really important for the states to step up and do this. Uh, unfortunately, it's fundamentally unjust that we don't have a federal MCL because some states are not going to do it. And the other problem that we have is that one of the major sources of contamination that were, was revealed under the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule was the release of PFOS and PFOA and some other PFASs through firefighting foam at military facilities. So the Department of Defense is using EPA's health advisory level of 70 parts per trillion singly or in combination uh, for PFOA and PFOS, and they are not using the state standards. So um, this problem, uh, there's uh, 401 active and closed military installations across the nation where PFOA and PFOS have been found, and they're investigating 660 of them. And the military testing so far shows that PFOA and PFOS above the EPA health advisory level are at 564 of the 2,400 that they've tested outside of the bases. So we have a huge problem in terms of safe drinking water around military facilities, and they're using the EPA HAL. I think there needs to be some sort of legislation, and I don't know where that legislation would be, but federal level, I know that there are some efforts being made by uh, congressional delegations, particularly uh, ones representing uh, uh, states where there's nothing going on, like Pennsylvania. Um, and perhaps it needs to be at the federal level to say that the Department of Defense has to step up and use the strictest standards that apply where their sites are located. And that means in New Jersey, they would have to comply with New Jersey DEP's adopted MCLs. So it may be at the federal level. It may, I, I doubt that it would have an effect at the state level. But I do also think there is some litigation going on. I know the military has been sued in at least several, uh, one or two different places in Pennsylvania um, to try to get the Department of Defense to step up and uh, take some money out of their huge budget and apply it in a military-style campaign to clean up the sites that they have contaminated across the nation. Keith, you were uh, nodding your head. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, I think that this is, again, a situation where if the states will continue to uh, promulgate MCLs, but there has to be a national uh, decision as to how we're actually going to approach this. The problem is currently there is no legislation that I know of at the federal level which is approaching this. And it is uh, an issue that will continue and we actually have to do it, I think, currently state by state because the EPA is working at slower than a snail's pace to be able to promulgate these. And I think that, again, 
I think that the issue comes in is the public has to rise up and say, enough is enough. Um, and if, if you are responsible parties for the pollution, then you should clean it up and have a cost associated with it. And passing a lot of the cost on to the public really is not necessarily where it should be. And this is my opinion, is the fact that in actual fact, these companies have made trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars. And yet, how much would it cost them in their bottom line to step up to the plate and actually sit there and say, okay, we're going to put money forward to clean up the situations. And in my opinion, uh, there has to be a groundswell uh, across the country. I mean, it should no longer be acceptable that industry or the responsible parties get off scot-free from having to take care of what I consider a extremely important problem for chronic disease in this country. Um, Rich, just a, a question for you. Do you, do you, uh, do you we, as a municipal water provider, would you prefer to work to, to state regulation or to federal regulation? Or, I mean, are you, are you, in an ideal world, would you like to have one national standard? question. <laughs> I, I prefer state regulation, but I, I would like that to be based on some type of, you know, federal standards or advisories that exist before it and are used as the basis to validate it. You know, but it seems in, in any process that the EPA would undertake, I think it's a minimum of six years until they promulgate a re regulation. So you could be looking at a lot longer. So in, in our case, in order to protect our consumers, I would have to rely on the state. Right. And with that, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, thank you all for your excellent questions. And, and thank you particularly to our panel. It was a, it was a great discussion. And, uh, and we really appreciate you uh, uh, coming to share your views with us. Thanks very much. Hi, a couple of things um, before you leave. We have, uh, I think you were handed when you arrived, surveys on the event, if you don't mind filling those out and leaving them on the table when you walk out. We have confirmed that parking is free uh, if you parked in the garage, so uh, just take the, your ticket to the uh, guard and they will validate for us. And I also want to thank John Hurdle, our moderator. Um, he did a great job. I think our first roundtable. So you're doing all the rest of our roundtables from now on. So I just want just want you to know that. So, but thank you all for coming uh, very much. Thank you to the panelists, and have a great night. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast program from NJ Spotlight. For more information on NJ Spotlight roundtables and podcasts, visit njspotlight.com. We produce this podcast in the studios of statebroadcastnews.com in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.